Have you ever read a passage in the Bible that like, you scratch your heads out afterwards and you're like, what is this about and why is this in the Bible? Anybody ever done that before? Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 16 is one such passage. It deals with head coverings and length of hair. And you, know, you read that and you think, what is this about and how does this apply to today, and why does it even matter? And I hope tonight, when we're done, that we can bring some clarity um, to this confusing passage and really to see the overarching points that apply to even our lives today. So um, we're going to pick up in verse 2 and uh, let's pray. And then we'll jump into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for your word. And I pray tonight that you would overlook my inadequacies as a teacher. And tonight, God, you would speak to your people. Um, For those gathered here in this room, for those who are online, Lord, we ask just for um, clarity and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we saw last week that... Verse 1 of chapter 11 actually went with the discussion in chapter 10, where Paul had been talking about the right and wrong uses of Christian liberty, and he ends that conversation that really began in chapter 8 with this word, follow my example, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As we come to chapter 2 tonight, he's picking up on a new problem, new subject. And so we pick up in verse 2. He says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head covered, or her, her, head, excuse me, her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. And nor was man created for the woman, but the woman from man. And for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of a woman, nor woman independent of a man in the Lord. For as a woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for her as a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Who's confused? (laughs) Paul begins here with praise. 
in verse 2, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In essence, Paul is beginning here by saying, Hey, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. He's like, This is awesome. You know, I'm your pastor. I love you. I taught you. And you guys listen to me. So he's stoked about that. But there was a problem. You see, there were some in the church that were taking their cues from culture rather than from scripture. And that's always a great way to get messed up when we do that. And so the problem that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 11 has to do with that. And it's very important to understand that there is both a cultural aspect to Paul's instruction as well as a spiritual aspect. And whenever you study the Bible, it's always important to understand the culture and and the context of the culture behind the teaching. It helps give, you know, just information and application. But in this case, the teaching is directly related to the culture. And so some of the things that Paul's going to say here, the only way that it would, is going to make any sense to us is if we understand the culture. And the cultural aspects the, the cultural aspect that sets up the stage for this conversation had to do with the rampant feminism that was a part of the Roman culture. You know, we think of feminism today as a modern problem, but that's not true. Feminism has really existed from the beginning of the human race. And the historic record tells us that it was a major problem in the Roman Empire as well. And so it's important to understand that that the instruction that Paul is given, and you'll see this in a few minutes, the underlying thing that he's dealing with is this overarching, you know, mindset that had permeated the culture there in the Roman Empire and especially there in Corinth. And so the first thing I want you to note is that it was customary. This is another thing that's important to understand. It was customary in the first century culture for women to wear veils in public as a sign of their modesty. We know there are some cultures today that still practice this. But it was the idea of they were, you know, covering their, their modesty and really reserving their beauty to be seen by their husband or their future husband. But the women in the Roman Empire, they started to take off their veils or their head coverings as a sign of their independence. And much as in our own culture today, some of the women were demanding to be treated exactly like men. And they attacked marriage and they attacked raising a child as unjust restrictions of their rights. Some women even started to cut their hair in order to look like men. They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands and leaving their homes and refusing to care for their children. They were living with other men in adulterous relationships and even demanding jobs that traditionally were held by men. Some of them were wearing, started wearing women, or excuse me, men's clothing and discarding really all the signs of their femininity. And what's also interesting to note in relationship to this conversation and the text is that in that culture, 
Women typically had longer hair than men. That was the cultural norm. And that cultural norm really plays big into this conversation that Paul is having here with the Corinthians in chapter 11. Another thing that's very important and interesting to note um, that plays into the context of this conversation is that the prostitutes who were a part of the temple there of Aphrodite, remember we talked about that in the very beginning of our study in Corinth, is Corinth was known for this temple of this goddess and then they employed their a thousand prostitutes that would go out every single night into that, you know, culture and into the streets looking for men that they could seduce and bring into this idolatrous, you know, worship of this goddess um, of, of, the, of Corinth. What's interesting is all of those, those prostitutes, what was kind of the mark of them is that they would shave their heads. So picture this, Okay. Get a picture here of what's happening in Corinth. In that culture, the only women in that culture who had short hair were the feminists and the prostitutes who shaved their heads. The only women who were going around throughout culture without any veil or head covering, again, were the feminists and the prostitutes that worshipped the goddess there in Corinth. Now, before we continue with our study, because I'm sure I've ruffled some feathers already, um, let me just say this. Feminism on most fronts is a reaction to two things. It's a reaction to male chauvinism that has domed the mindset of humanity throughout the ages. It's a mindset that oftentimes treats women as lesser human beings, that sometimes even treats them as property to be used and abused. That was very common in the first century culture. But that was never God's design. That was never God's original intent. In fact, one of the most beautiful things about the gospel and the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus elevated the view of women in the world. We see Jesus, you know, in the gospels talking to women, like the woman of Samaria at the well, you know, talking to her in public. That was uncommon, especially for a rabbi to talk to a woman in public and to talk to her kindly like Jesus did. It's interesting to note that the first person that Jesus appears to after his resurrection was a woman and he commissions her to go and spread the word that he was was alive and that he was risen. So Jesus, he elevated the view of women in his ministry and in the scriptures. And we'll see in a minute that, that really in the beginning of creation, God also elevates the view of women. He places a high value on a woman. It was never ever God's intent that a woman would be devalued. But throughout history, women have been devalued by men. They've been seen as lesser, they've been seen as objects of sexual pleasure, of servitude, and many of the problems that we have in our society today stem from this devaluing of women. Some statistics point that out. Consider the World Health Organization says that one-fifth of the world's females are physically and or sexually abused by men at some point in their lifetime. One-fifth 
of the women in the world. The U.S. Surgeon General says that domestic violence by males against females accounts for more adult female emergency room visits than traffic accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. That's staggering to think about. The U.S. Department of Justice Justice says that 30% of all women who are murdered are killed by husbands, ex-boyfriends, or boyfriends. So the feminists, they hear, you know, statistics like that, and they say, you know what, men are horrible to women. And I think in a lot of ways we could say, you know what, you're right. There is truth to that. So feminism is a reaction to how poorly women have been treated by men through the ages. But feminism, don't miss this, is also the failure of both men and women to properly understand and embrace God's divine role for men and women. And that's the spiritual aspect that Paul is going to bring into this conversation as he begins by discussing the subject of headship. Look at verse 3. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, to help them understand this issue of headship, Paul takes his listeners back to the very beginning, back to the book of Genesis to discuss discuss this idea of order and equality as a part of headship. Look at verse 8. He says, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. He's talking there about the Genesis account, how the woman was taken from the rib of Adam. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for man. So to understand Paul's argument, we need to really look back to Genesis. And so I want you to do this. I want you to keep your place here in Corinthians and turn all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, page one in Genesis chapter one. And we're going to see the spiritual background that sets up this conversation on headship and God's divine order as it relates to men and women. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to see that the picture, and God's really into pictures. How many of you like picture books growing up, okay? You should love the Bible because God's into pictures. He loves painting pictures. And here's a picture that he sets up in the marriage relationship in creation with the first man and woman. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now there's the triune Godhead, us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now the first thing that I want to point out is that God created both men and women in his image. 
He created both men and women, according to what we just read, to be image bearers. That's what it means that we are created in God's image, is we have been created to be image bearers of who he is. So we could say this, that men and women have an equal calling from God that we see here in the very creation, that our our overarching calling is to be image bearers of God. They have an equal calling. The next thing that I want you to see is that men and women have also been given an equal blessing. Look at verse 28. It says, then God blessed who? Say it loudly. Them. Doesn't say he blessed Adam. It says that he blessed them, the man and the woman. God blessed them. And then it says, and God said to them. So part of the blessing that God is going to give is what he is going to say next. And it's going to involve the mission that God has given to both the man and the woman. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the mission. God tells them to be fruitful to fill the earth, to have dominion over it. I think we could sum up what God is saying here to the man and the woman in this way, that they're to love God, they're to love each other in every single way as it relates to the marriage relationship. They're to love God, love each other, and they're to take care of what God has put into their hands. They're to have dominion over what he has put in their hands. And you know what? That's the same mission that God has given to every single married couple that he has given, every married couple in Christ, that we're to love God, we're to love each other, and we're to take care of what God has put into our hands. So we can say this about this first couple. Here's the picture that God's painting. They are equal in their calling, they are equal in their blessing, and they are equal in their mission, but obviously they have different roles to play in that mission of being fruitful and multiply, and I don't think I have to explain that to you tonight, right? You understand that, you know, human anatomy, different roles, okay. Um, now, in chapter 2, there is, we're going to see that God lays out an order to this equality. In chapter 2, God is retracing the steps of creation with a little more detail. And in verse 15, he starts talking about man. It says, then, look at chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now I want you to note something here. Because at this point in the retracing of the the creation record, the, the woman hasn't been created yet. And so the instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was given to the man. It was given to Adam, and it would be his responsibility to share that with his wife when she came into the picture. I think that's an important thing to note in this, because in God's headship, one of the things that is very important for the man to understand is that his role, he has his role, because a big part of it is about responsibility. 
the early picture of man's headship, spiritual headship, and responsibility in the marriage relationship is seen here in this passage. Now, in verse 18, the Lord continues, and the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So God gives Adam this task to name the animals. So here comes all the animals. You know, here comes Mr. and Mrs. Lion and Mr. and Mrs. Elephant and Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. And, you know, pretty soon, like, okay, <laughs> Adam's like, okay, there's, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Lion. Mr. Where's Mrs. Adam? You know, what's going on here? There's something that is missing. And God recognizes this. And God actually says, it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper. He needs a helpmate. Now, especially you guys, listen. The helper here, that it doesn't mean maid. It doesn't mean cook. It doesn't mean the one to pick up, you know, his socks and underwear that he leaves all over the floor. It's not, you know, to clean up after his message, his messes. No, the word here, helper, the meaning of this word gives great understanding. And this is part of the problem is there's a lot of misunderstanding in the church today about this word helper. But in the Hebrew, this word is ezer kenegdo. And it's a title given to the woman by God here in the very beginning of creation that elevates her role tremendously. The word ezer means strength and power. So a wife is, is a strength and power, and it's a strength and power that is comparable. So a wife has strength and power, the Lord is saying, comparable to her husband. He's obviously, you know, in most cases, not talking here about physically, okay? He's talking about something else. But this word ezer appears 20 times, 21 times in the Old Testament and twice in reference to the first woman. Three times it appears in the scriptures to the nations to whom Israel appealed to for military support. 16 times though, and I want you to note this, 16 times of those 21 times, it is in reference to God as the helper of Israel. I'll give you a couple of examples. The Hebrew term ezer or helper is employed to describe God, the consummate the consummate intervener in, in Psalm 10 verse 14 as the helper of the fatherless. In Psalm 70 verse 5 as King David's helper and deliverer. And in Deuteronomy 33 verse 29 as Israel's shield and helper. Okay, That's three of the 16 times this word is, that God uses to describe Eve the first woman he uses to describe himself. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, Ezer is combined with the word konegdo, and the meaning is something of a helper of the same nature. 
or the helper of a corresponding nature. That connecto literally means as in front of him, suggesting that the Ezer of Genesis 2 is Adam's perfect match. She's the yin to his yang, we might say. She's this perfect fit for him. That everything about this title that God is using here implies mutuality. It implies harmony. It implies partnership. It implies this idea that she's been brought to Adam to be his lifesaver in a sense. To come alongside of him and to help him. This was God's design seen in the very first married couple. That marriage was meant to be a partnership. That God gave the first married couple an equal calling, an equal equal blessing, and an equal mission. But different roles in that and different function in that design. Now let's continue. Verse 21 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, so picture this. Adam's been sleeping all you single guys that are interested in, you know, finding a mate, I want you to note that. Adam's not, you know, climbing trees, you know, looking, where is she? You know, he's resting in the Lord, all right, to bring her to him. But he's, he's sleeping and he wakes up and there is this beautiful and naked woman, <laughs> naked creature next to him. And he wakes up and he is like, whoa, man, all right? This is awesome, okay? (laughs) And Eve responds, whoa, man. (laughs) Slow down, chill out, right? Because, and that's kind of been the norm ever since that, right? Between the man and the woman, having the same response ever since. But notice what it says next in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Now, I want you to notice the order here. This plays also into this whole idea of headship that God is setting up. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother. You see, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that in the marriage relationship, that the husband is a picture of Jesus. And his role in the marriage relationship is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And here in Genesis chapter 2, there in verse 24, I think we have the first picture of this. That the man, he says, is to leave his mother and father. That man, in other words, has this responsibility to care for his wife. That the man has the responsibility to serve and to sacrifice. Why this picture? Why is this picture given? Well, Jesus, he would leave heaven. He would leave that place of comfort where he was worshipped there in heaven. He would leave that place and come to this earth to cleave and attach himself to a bride, to serve her and to sacrifice for her. 
You see, in order for her, for him to attach himself to his bride, Jesus would have to lay down his life. And in Ephesians, Paul, this is the picture that he paints. Husband, that's how you're to love your wife, is the way that Jesus did. You're to lay down your life for her. And so the picture is that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And so we, as the church, we respond to his love because of what he did for us. You know, the Bible says that, that we... that. We, Jesus first loved us, and then we responded to his love. We didn't first love him. He first loved us. And that's the picture in marriage that, that, that the Bible, that Paul he sets up there in the book of Ephesians is, is that a man is in this picture of, of Jesus, and he's to love his wife, that in the same way that Jesus left you know, heaven, that the man is to leave his father and mother to sacrifice and to come to this place of, of, of giving himself to serve and to sacrifice for his bride. And so this is the picture that God wants us to have in the marriage relationship. The husband as the head, as a servant leader, but he leads by lovingly giving his life in service and sacrifice for his bride, and the wife lovingly responds to that by submitting and respecting her husband. You see, what God is teaching us here is that marriage is about partnership. That a man and woman, equal in calling, equal in blessing, equal in mission, but this equality is an ordered equality. Men are called to lead. Now get this, ladies, listen to this. Men are called to lead not because they're better, not because they're smarter, not because they're more godly, but it's because of God's design. It's because of this picture that God was setting up in the very, very beginning that the picture of the man and woman in marriage would be a picture of his relationship with the church. Men are called to be leaders and really what is at the forefront, really, of, of our calling, guys, as leader is responsibility. That basically God is saying, I'm going to place the responsibility of your family and the success of your family on your shoulders. Responsibility lies on you. You're in that picture of Jesus. You're not Jesus, but you're in that picture of Jesus. The greater responsibility is put on the men. Now, Think about this. The whole chaos that infiltrated the world happened when man didn't fulfill that role. You see, Adam's, you know what Adam's problem was? Adam's problem is that he was passive. If you want to turn over to Genesis chapter 3, we see that Eve wanders over to the tree that she's not supposed to be at, Okay? She's exercising her independence. This is the first sign of feminism taking place in the world. She's taking matters into her own hands. Adam's problem? He's passive. Instead of leading, he lets 
Eve take the lead. And so we read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. So the, when the woman, this is after she's having the conversation, she's been tempted by the devil, it's gone back and forth. And it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate... And then it says, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So if you've ever been taught, and I've heard this taught before, Adam's problem was he left his wife uncovered, and this is what they mean by that. They'll say, you know, he was off in some other part of the garden, and he left Eve by herself, and she wanders over to the tree, has this conversation with the devil, gets tempted, eats of the fruit. That's not what it says. It says, Eve ate and then gave it to her husband who was with her. Like, he's right there. He's watching this whole thing go down. And what's he doing? He's being passive. He's not leading. He's not fulfilling his role to lovingly lead his wife. Now, note this. Here's what's crazy. Who was deceived? Come on. Who was deceived? Eve. Who ate first? Eve, who gets the blame? No, Adam. And this is important to understand. This is a part of the whole headship argument. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, not one woman, sin entered the world and death through sin. One man. Eve's deceived. Eve eats first. Adam gets the blame. Why? Adam wasn't fulfilling his role. He wasn't doing what God had set up for him to do. So one, just one man, his sin, entered into the whole world, but then also, check this out, in in, uh, 5 verse 18 of Romans, therefore as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, that's what happened through Adam, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man righteous act, Jesus, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. This is the theological truth that Paul has in mind as he discusses this subject of headship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So let's turn back there now. Okay, If we set the stage, we set that all up, let's go back. And basically what Paul is laying out here, this is the argument, is there's two, one of two headships that you can be under. You can either be under the headship of Jesus or you can be under the headship of Adam. Adam's headship is he's being passive and he's being rebellious, okay? This is the headship of Adam. So hopefully we can bring this all together. Look back at verse three. But I want you to know that The head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So here's what he's saying. Headship has to do with order, not equality. And this is the picture that he's given. We're going to look at this in reverse. He says at the end there that the head of Christ is God. So Jesus and God, they're one. They're equal. Jesus would say, I and the Father am one. Jesus was equal to the Father. But we read in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus willingly made himself subject to the Father as a man. He would say, I can't do anything apart from my Father. 
So God is the head of Christ. That's the point that Paul's making. It's clear throughout Scripture. Jesus and God equal, but Jesus made himself subject to his heavenly father as a man. Then he says, and Christ is the head of man. Jesus is the head of the church, and really he's over all things. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus, he's the head over all things. He's the head of man. And then he says, and the man is head over the woman. This is what Paul's saying. This is God's order. This is God's design. This is the way that God set it up. Now, a woman might say, well, I don't, I don't want to be under a man. Well, are you better than Jesus? Okay. This is what he's saying here. This is the picture. Jesus put himself under God. The man is under Christ. The woman is under the man. Now this is again, it's not about, it's about order but not equality. We've already talked about, okay, equal in mission, equal in calling, equal in blessing, but there's an order to this in God's design and we have to follow that. Think of it this way. You know, you could go to a store and buy an appliance and appliances, you know, you buy that appliance and you got to put it together and it comes with instructions. And oftentimes there's a warranty that's connected to the instructions. You ever see that? Like if you don't put this together this way, the warranty is null and void. And so in the instructions it says that you're to push button A before button B. But you're one of those guys that doesn't like to read instructions. So you're like, hey, I can figure this out. You know, I I can work this. And so you're putting it all together and you end up pushing, you know, button B before button A. And not only does it not work, it blows up. And so you want to take it back and say, hey, this didn't work, but they're looking at it and they know if you touch B before A, it blows up. And so they know that you did not follow the instructions. And so they say, sorry, no refund and no replacement. Well, the Bible is God's instruction. And you know, sometimes God's instruction doesn't make sense to us, but if we follow it, we find out that it works perfectly. It works beautifully. So headship, again, is not about... It has to do with order, not equality. And there's this, there's this order in God's design. And this is what we find. If we follow it, it works. If we follow it, it makes sense. If we follow it, it's, it's beautiful. So the first thing we see is headship had to do with order, not equality. And the second thing we see is coverings had to do with God's glory instead of our glory. Look at verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying has his head covered, dishonors his head. Now again, this was cultural. The idea of head coverings for a man was not a normal part of this society at that time. That would come later. You know, we see Jewish men now wearing yarmulkes. And sometimes, you know, you get on an airplane, you're going to Israel, and you'll see the Jewish men get up and they're praying and they put this shah over their head. That was something that came later. That was not a part of the cultural custom here in the first century. And so this is what Paul's saying. Every man praying or prophesying, if he has his head covered, he dishonors his head. He's dishonoring, who's his head? Jesus. So it would almost be, this is kind of the idea, he's talking culturally here, and we need to understand this. He's, He's relating this to the culture. Men in that culture did not go around wearing head coverings, okay? 
It'd be like a guy coming to church and he comes up and he's going to read the passage to us and he's got lipstick on, okay? We'd be kind of like, okay, that's weird. You know, why is he wearing lipstick? You know, it doesn't fit. It's not a part of the culture. Hopefully it never will be, right? Um, But for a man to wear a head covering when praying or prophesying, it dishonors his head. It dishonors Jesus. Why? Because it would be drawing attention to himself. Because it's not normal. Like everybody would be going, why is, he, like, why is he wearing that head covering? That doesn't, you know, we don't do that. Men don't do that. What's he doing, okay? This is part of the context to this. Then he says in verse five, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. So, so let her be covered. Now notice first of all, I want you to catch this. Here we see a woman in the church praying. That's okay. Prayer is talking to God about men. We also see a woman in the church prophesying. Prophesying is talking to men about God. Okay. Now Paul doesn't say a woman shouldn't be doing that. No, he he says, that's fine. That's okay. In fact, really, and we don't have time to go into all of this, but the only thing really that the Bible forbids a woman from doing is being a pastor in a church. That role is reserved in Scripture for men. Paul lays out the qualifications in Timothy and Titus. And if you don't like that, you need to argue with God, okay? You need to take that up with him. He says the qualifications are that it's a man who is the husband of one wife, okay? It's a man in that role. Again, reserved for men, not because men are smarter or godlier or better communicators. It's all a part, and this is the key that we have to understand. It's all about about God's design. It's all about God's order. It's all about God's picture. But a woman can pray and prophesy. A woman can lead in ministry. Women can definitely teach women and kids. But here, Paul says that in Corinth, when a woman in the church was to pray and prophesy, that she needed to make sure and have her head covered. Why? Because that was the cultural norm. Again, the only woman... The only women in that culture who didn't wear head coverings were the feminists and the prostitutes, okay? This is the cultural context that he's referring to here. So if she's not wearing her covering, she's dishonoring her husband. And if she's single, she's dishonoring her father. She's basically illustrating this. I don't want to be under the headship of my husband. And ultimately, I'm rejecting God's plan. And I'm rejecting God's glory. I want my way. I want to do my way, basically. So he says, that's the case. Let her be shaven. Why? Might as well, because she's acting like the women in the culture running around in defiance of their husbands. So let her be shaven. So this is really the heart of the issue. And I think there is application for us today in this is that women in the church are to appear to be different from the world. Okay? It's important we understand that. 
Women in the church are are to appear to be different from women in the world. Let's continue, verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now this is interesting, because the word glory here is really the word reflection or outshining. And here's what Paul's saying. The man is the reflection or the outshining of Jesus. That's the picture that God paints. The man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He's the reflection of Jesus, and the woman is to be the reflection of her husband. Now, this is interesting for you husbands, because sometimes I'll have husbands that come and they want to complain. They're not happy with their wife for one reason or another. They'll say she's grouchy she's hard to get along with and I'll say you know what bro you need to look in the mirror (laughs) because the Bible says she's the reflection of you that's what Paul's saying here okay again God's design men are the reflection of Jesus and they love their wives a wife is going to reflect the love of their of her husband and in her behavior as well as in her countenance and then he says in verse 8 for a man is not from woman but woman from man again he's talking here about order Man was first. The woman came from the man. Now what's interesting, the woman comes from the man, from where? His side, his rib. She doesn't come from his head to be over him. She doesn't come from his foot to be under him. She comes from his side to be right next to him. To be equal in this ordered equality, equal in mission, equal in calling, equal in blessing, just different roles. Then he says this, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. The woman was made to be this Ezer Kenegdo, this, this incredible creature that God brought into the, the, the being to be the helpmate's. The one called alongside to be his essential comrade. The one called alongside to help him and support him and to be equal to him and and to help him do what God had called them to do together as a couple. So here's what Paul's saying. He's not saying, and, and, and I want you to note this, he's not saying men don't need women. It's not a general statement. When he says, you know, nor was man created for, for a woman, but a woman for man. Men don't need women. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's talking here in, about, he's rehearsing the created order. God determined that man needs a woman. But he created them in this ordered equality, this partnership. Working together to fulfill God's mission for them as a couple. And when they are fulfilling their roles and working together, it is a beautiful thing to behold. It's amazing. Now, something that the theologian N.T. Wright pointed out that I thought was fascinating about this as Paul is connecting all of this to the worship service is this idea that in the worship service, in the church, when we gather together like we are here tonight, and this order is taking place, that in essence we are reclaiming what was messed up in the garden. 
We're reclaiming as an act of worship what Jesus redeemed. It's a beautiful thing to think about. As we come together like this in this order in in our worship times together that what man messed up, we're saying as we're coming together that we're, we're wanting to place ourselves back in to be yielded under the leadership and submitted to the leadership of Jesus. Part of our worship is yielding ourselves to God's way. And then he says in verse 10, for this reason, the women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So the covering is the symbol that she's under authority, okay? That she's identifying, that she's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm with God. I'm, I realize I'm under authority. And he, now what's this mean though? Because of the angels. Well, think about this. The angels are very, very sensitive to the idea of order, because they saw firsthand what happened when there was disorder in heaven. They saw firsthand what happened when Lucifer tried to usurp God's authority and he gets kicked out of heaven. And the Bible says he took a third of the angels with him. So the angels are really, really sensitive to this idea of order because of Lucifer's rebellion. And so this is, he's making reference to that. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. So here's what he's saying. The man is not independent from the woman, and the woman is not independent from the man. They are one in the Lord. They have this partnership. This is what God has set up. They're a team, uniquely brought together by the Lord. And then he's going to finish this whole conversation with a natural observation that had to do with what they believed in, in kind of the cultural, what was happening in that, in that culture. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for her covering. Again, In that culture, when a woman prays with her head uncovered, she's doing two things. Number one, she's drawing attention to herself. Because you see, her hair was her glory. That was her glory. And it was to be kept covered. To be revealed only to her husband for him to see her beauty. Now, and today, we could liken this to, you know, women going around wearing revealing clothing. It's revealing parts of their body that should only be seen by their husband. So the idea is not flaunting, especially in this environment. But, but as a Christian woman, you know, it just in general is the idea here. That's the, the, the culture. He's talking here culturally, Okay. So on one hand, if a woman were to have her head uncovered in the church, and especially praying and prophesying, people would notice. It'd be like, why is she doing that? She's not wearing her covering. She's going against the cultural norm, and she would be standing out, and the ladies would be wondering, why is she doing that? Why is she uncovered? So So one problem would be drawing attention to herself, and the other problem would be is she would be in defiance to her husband, and both are not godly. And God doesn't get any glory in that. 
And you see, all of this conversation is on the heels of what Paul said, I want to remind you, in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, when he said that we're to do all things for the glory of God. That's the premise. That's the focus. That's the thing that he wants them to be most concerned about is God's glory. Now, in the same way, again, got to think culturally here. It was for a man to have long hair in that culture, that was uncommon. Now, the idea, the thing is that we don't know what constitutes long hair, okay? There's nothing in scripture that says, okay, if it's this many inches, it's long hair. But in that culture, it wasn't the norm. I know we have all these pictures, you know, and these ideas in our mind of all these guys running around with these, you know, long hair. And, and, but, but that's really not what, what was the norm in that culture. So what he's doing, the man, if he has long hair and he's prophesying, this is what he's doing. He's dishonoring himself by drawing attention to himself. Because again, it wasn't the norm. It's like, okay, why is he doing that? He's coming across as feminine as the idea. And this is part of the issue there in Corinth is that the cultists and the feminists were confusing the gender roles through their appearances. And Paul is saying we need to protect the definite distinctions that God has created as a part of his design. We need to protect that. God made men and women distinctly, and he wants us to protect that. Now, in verse 16, he says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, the idea of that word is a lover of strife, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. He's saying, look, this is the common teaching and practice in all the churches in the region. So here's the application for us today. The cultural issues of head covering and hair length are not an issue in our day and age. It doesn't apply. We don't, we're not in a culture that practices head coverings. We're not in a culture that, you know, is concerned about the length of men's hair. So the cultural coverings and hair length are not an issue, but listen, gender roles do matter. Because although God made men and women equal in calling and blessing and mission, he did make them different in appearance, he made them different in function for a reason, both physically and spiritually. And he wants us to understand that. That part of the design and the order that God has put together for the, men and the, the man and the woman is to carry out the mission that God has given to us. And we need to respect that and to celebrate the, the differences and, and also resist the tendency of our culture to do away with the differences. And that's what's happening in our culture. Our culture is wanting to do away from, make everything, you know, unisex. That's not God's design. That's not God's design. And so gender roles to God do matter. The second application we have is that there is an order in marriage. That the husband is to be the servant leader. The wife is the Zer Konegdo, this amazing role of partner, and she is to embrace that role, to not see it as a burden, but as a blessing, and the husband is to value her in that role. And in the church, the application is that our goal is to glorify God and bring attention to God, not to ourselves. So men and women need to be mindful of our appearances, and not wear clothes that are too tight 
are too revealing. And these days, that goes both ways <laughs> because of skinny jeans and muscle shirts and, and all of that, that, you know, guys can, in the same way, they can be drawing attention to themselves. And God's saying, hey, I don't want you to do that. That dishonors your head, Jesus. Because our goal and our function needs to be that he would have the glory. Now, I will say this, though. We can overreact in this and start looking unkept and like, I just don't want to draw any attention to myself. And you know what we're doing? We're drawing attention to ourselves. So the idea is be normal. Look normal. Dudes look like dudes, okay? Ladies look like ladies. Embrace your feminist side. Ladies, not guys, okay? <laughs> guys be guys. That's what he's saying. He's, it's, it's the over, you know, part of the overarching thing that he's saying here is like, look, guys, you, you need to be men. You need to look like men. And in that culture, the, the men didn't go around with long hair, okay? Made them look feminine. It was dishonoring. And the last thing that we want to note here is God is concerned with order in the church and we need to be concerned about that as well. When we are following God's design and order, things work and when things work, God is glorified. And this is going to be the thing that Paul hits on in the rest of chapter 11 as he talks about um, communion and how they were dishonoring communion. I mean, they were literally, you know, this is going to blow your mind because, you know, we give this little cup of, you know, juice and and in those days they, they had a whole love feast that would happen as a part of that. And people were getting drunk. They're coming to, you know, they're coming to communion and they're like stuffing themselves and, and, and like, it's like Thanksgiving and they're getting wasted, you know, and, and imagine that, okay? It's like communion Sunday last week and people are walking out just totally smashed, you know? That's what's happening. That was, was saying, Paul's going to rebuke them for that because they were dishonoring. It was completely out of order. And then he continues to talk about that as he goes into um, talking about the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12 through 14. And so that's where we're going to be heading as we go through this and hopefully that made sense to you tonight so let's pray lord we thank you for your word we thank you god that you do love us so much that you've created us uniquely as men and women with roles and function in your mission Thank you, Lord, that as husbands and wives, we get to partner together. As men and women in the church, we get to partner together in the various roles that you have put out for us. And Lord, we want to be people who embrace your word, who yield ourselves to the instructions. Like, like Pete was talking about tonight, the wise builder versus the foolish builder. Lord, we want to be the wise builder. And you define the wise builder as the one who hears your word and puts it into practice. So God, we want to embrace that tonight. We want to embrace, Lord, the roles that you have for us in our marriage relationships. Lord, I pray for the men here that we wouldn't be guilty 
of the sin of Adam and being passive. Letting our wives lead and letting our wives call the shots. And, but Lord, that we would be the men that you've called us to be. Those servant leaders. Lord, that you would help us to value our wives. To see the incredible role that you have given them. The incredible gifting that you've given them to be a partner in this thing that we call life and marriage, and ministry, and child-wearing, and all of that. That, Lord, we would be people who are faithful with what you've put into our hands. And we ask this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.